I'm absolutely convinced that all men, including you and I, have hidden potential that's not been tapped into. The team and I have designed a quiz for you to work out what that could be, and there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end, but for now, enjoy the episode. I think that men can change. I don't think that we have to be bound by our life experiences or by the legacy that's been left by our forebears. I think that we can we can change. And, and when that hope erupts in you, when you believe for someone else, even if it's not for yourself, I believe for this kid that he could change. That's powerful. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. Sometimes we can build up an idea of ourselves so much that it becomes a legend. We're in control, we're powerful, when actually, maybe the more courageous thing is to let people see who we really are. One of Tim Churchward's first cases as a social worker was a 16-year-old boy who we'll call Ted. Ted had a really tough upbringing. He had learning difficulties and got mixed up in crime. He was arrested for criminal damage and assault and was summoned to court. Tim was there to support him. We're out in the lobby of the court. We're just talking about court. He's like, you know, yeah, whatever. Very like anti, very anti-establishment. Um, very much like, I'm the winner. Like, I'm the man and I'm going to walk this journey. No one's going to stop me. You know, like the swagger, you know, screw it. I don't care. Like, whatever happens, happens. They're not going to send me to prison. I'm just a kid. Like, the, all of these things, proper East London boy. As you're walking from the lobby, you have to go through these big doors, but there's two doors. And, and you can feel, like, the confidence ooze as he's in the lobby. And as he walks through this first door, you get the sense that the confidence has been eroded slightly. You walk past two security guards, and they're a lot bigger than you, right? Um, and then you walk into the second door, and it's, like, silent. It's completely silent. Ted takes a seat next to his solicitor, and, and you feel like the awe of the moment. It hits you, oh, this is serious. And then what you have to do is you have to stand, you have to rise, and the magistrates walk in, um, they take their seats, um, and then when they sit down, you get to sit down. So in that moment, even the, um, the very physical activity of what happens in a court minimizes this kid's ability to express his power or express like this sense of like, I'm in charge. Like my power's been taken away, I want to take it back. There's this real sense of change in mood. His mum's in tears, she doesn't know what to do. And the magistrates say, well, do the defendant stand? And all he is doing is he is saying, I'd have to talk to you. I'd have to talk to you. Why don't I talk to you? And it's escalating, and it's escalating, and it's escalating. So you've got these two worlds colliding. This world where this young man has essentially his whole life done whatever he wanted. And then he comes to a point where he is being curtailed and he's raiding against it. So you've got the justice world and the criminal world colliding. All you can see is the nervousness of the, of the other two magistrates sipping their water. <laughs> and you know what's going on. You know they're like, this is going to kick off. This is going to kick off. Security get called in because he's gradually getting more and more and more animated, but also really aggravated with the situation. To the point where the magistrate says, you have half an hour to leave the room and calm down outside. Um, or we'll have to try and figure out a way to uh, administer justice without you here. At which point he picks up a pencil and throws it at the magistrate. 
I'm like, hey, Ted, let's go. Um, let's just move. Let's walk out, back to the lobby, outside, go and have a fag, whatever it was. So as we're walking, I'm saying to him, hey, listen, you need to understand that this situation is not something that you can control. And actually, you need to understand that you don't always get what you want exactly when you want it, and it doesn't have to be a fight. This doesn't have to be a war. Like sometimes what happens is, is that there are consequences to our actions. And, and the idea is, hey, like how do you as a, as, as a young man, how do you as a young man deal with not getting what you want when you want it? And the idea of bringing maleness and masculinity out of an East End macho, win every war setting into a deferred gratification, into a, hey, self-control is a positive thing. And in the end, we decide that he's not going to say anything. But the way that he would be able to be at peace with the fact that he's in control is by the fact he doesn't have to say anything at all. His solicitor can speak on his behalf. And so in the end, we, we walk back into the court and he sits still and he doesn't say anything. Ted gets what we asked for in terms of his order. It was called a referral order at that point. So then he, he basically has to work with me. And we leave. And he said to me, oh, so that means I get to see you again. I was like, yeah, bro. Yeah, absolutely. We can walk this out together. And he's like, oh, okay. That's all he said. And he went off with his mum. That's all he said. Oh, okay. So, Tim, how did you feel in that moment when you and Ted were walking out of court I think in that moment, I'm like, there's hope. You know, like, there's almost like this sense of, wow, we could do this. <laughs> Together, like, we, we could walk a journey where your expression of yourself won't harm anybody else. And there's hope for you in your future. There's hope that you don't have to always be bound by um, the background or by the the consequences of your activity and actions in terms of criminality, but also in terms of your example from your brothers and from the gang are involved in and whatever, there's hope for you. That's how I felt. And it's, it's an emotional thing, actually. Like when you, when you believe or when you get to a point where you believe that there can be change in a person, because you're told from a very, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but I was told from a very young age that people don't often change. Like people are people, they are what they are. And actually, I don't believe that. I think that people can change. I think that men can change. I don't think that we have to be bound by our life experiences or by the legacy that's been left by our forebears. I think that we can, we can change. And, and when that hope erupts in you, when you believe for, a, for someone else, even if it's not for yourself, I believe for this kid that he could change. Um, that's powerful, powerful moment. And what happened after the court hearing when Ted started coming to see you? Yes, I mean, he went, got the bus with his mum, and then three days later, he was in the office to see me. And so three days later, he comes in and, and, and he, can't look, he can't look at me. Not, there's no shame there. He's not ashamed. He's, he doesn't know how to interact. Like he can't do face-to-face. -face. He can do angry face-to-face. -face. He can do like, um, hey, I'll score up to you and I'll punch you in the head face-to-face. -face. But he can't, do the, he can't do the intimate connection. He can't do the sense of, the sense of connecting in with another man or human being whatever it might be um, he can't do that and over the course of like the next three months all we do is i give him some paper to draw on there's things we have to do as part of the court order right we have to get those things done 
So I give him some papers to draw on, and all he does the whole time is he grunts at me. This is for th- once a week for three months. We've done 12, 13 sessions. And he grunts at me and he draws swastikas and skulls. That's all he does for three months. And so we're doing 15 minutes of the work we have to do. And I have to go through assessments with him. I have to go through the court order stuff with him. I have to go through all the things that, that are traditionally meant to help a kid not reoffend. And I'm telling you, nothing works. Nothing. I, we do pictures. We um, try and figure out how to do stuff in story form, in, um, in animated form, and nothing happens. I woke up one morning, I was like, I literally, I mean, I, 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 like, for me, like, I, I, I believe in God, right? So I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor by trade. So I'm like, I literally woke up, I was like, hey, God, I cannot do this. <laughs> like, I literally cannot do the same thing with this kid. And, and I just woke up and I was like, I have to go take him to play pool. Like, this is what, this is what happened. Let, let's go play pool. So it's like three quid to play pool. And this kid has never played pool in his life. And he picks up a pool cue and he holds it the whole way around. <laughs> and, and I'm like, no, do it this way, turn it around, like do the chalk, whatever. And as we're playing pool, he's awful. I mean, I'm awful as well, but he's absolutely awful. But it doesn't matter because we're not face to face. And I'm asking him the questions that I've been asking for three months. And all of a sudden, it comes out about his life. I'm asking him, hey, like, what's it like at home? Like really basic, because I'm trying to figure out, hey, like, what's the experience you're coming from? So I'm asking him, hey, what's it like at home? At first, it, it, it begins with, yes, yeah, all right, it's fine. You know, like, I'm like, okay, cool. So what do you, what do, you do? Like, like, what do you do at home? He's like, I play PlayStation. And then I'm like, okay, cool. So who else is in your house? And he's like, my big fat twat brother. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, so, like, what, so why is he a big fat twat? Like, what, what happened there for your brother? Like, what is that? Like, do you not like him then? Like, what's, what's going on there? And as he opens up, what we get to is the fact that actually he's the youngest of five. We knew that, but we didn't know the, who was living at home. Um, he's the youngest of five. And actually, he's significantly bullied in his family home because he's very, like, he's, he's um, cognitively slow. Um, he isn't able to articulate himself. He's the youngest anyway in terms of, like, the hierarchy of age. And actually, what we find is, is that he, he hates being at home. His mother has no control over any of them, really, but his older brothers are involved in crime. They're involved in um, particularly drug dealing. And, and basically, he is the punching bag. And, and as we open up these, these questions, I'm like, hey, so like, what, what is that? What, what do you do? Like, how, how do you handle that? And, he's, and he literally said he can't hit his brothers because they're bigger than him. So he goes into his room and he smashes his room up. So we continue to ask these questions and try and figure all this stuff out. And he's not looking at me. Like the eye contact thing really isn't there. Um, and because he doesn't know how to engage in that way. And so as we, as we, as we wrap up, like we pay Paul for 40 minutes, whatever else it is, we, we go, the, the, the session's over. And I just put my hand out to shake his hand. And for the first time, he shook my hand for the first time. So the, the connection wasn't eye contact, but the connection was a handshake. The whole idea of, of eye contact's a really interesting one. Where do you think that whole thing comes for him? Lack of eye contact can mean a whole number of things, can't it? So, so, so for this kid, it wasn't shame. So sometimes lack of eye contact is like this sense of like you, 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 can't, you can't look at someone because you feel shame in their presence or whatever. For, for this lad, my gut is, and hear me, like I'm not, uh, my, my master's degree is in, in psychoanalytics with social work. So I've got some good for this, but I'm not an expert. I'm not a trained professional. But, but my gut is, is that I actually think um, eye contact's a learned 
learned behavior. I think like understanding what it looks like or feels like to engage with someone, especially as a man. And I don't, and, and I know that this is that anxiety and social anxiety and shame and those things are like not, not just gender specific, but there is something about it being quite an intimate thing to do as a bloke, especially for ki- for young kids. Um, I think with this lad, with Ted, I think, I think for him, the idea of connecting with someone in terms of like a relationship, in terms of something that was a positive thing for him, I think for him, it was genuinely that he'd never, ever been taught how to hold a, an intense conversation or a conversation about anything. So, so, so when I'm talking to you, like I'm actually looking, um, we on you're online right but I, i'm looking you in the eyes because like that's what you do but for i don't know if you know this but for lots of people they they if they struggle with it and they go to psychotherapy or a psychologist or whatever they're taught they're taught to look, look at people's eyebrows but they're taught to look at their forehead so when you're when you're doing public speaking for example if people's faces look blank or like they look like they want to hit you or whatever or they, or they disagree with what you're saying you're taught hey don't look in their eyes look at their heads or just above because there's something very um in depth about looking in someone's eyes it's very um it brings out a lot of insecurity for ted the insecurity was i don't know what to do but it wasn't like oh my gosh i'm shameful or unworthy it was like i just don't get it i don't know what to do and what i know is is that if i look you in the eye the the intensity or the feeling of being out of control so the feeling that i don't know what's going on almost behind your eyes i don't know what's going on in your brain and that really isn't safe that's not a safe space i just think that's interesting i think for me one of the things that i learned work with young young people that offended was that if you if you try and enforce a relational connection like eye contact they'll skip they'll run um, they'll run away. But actually, if you if you're able to um, live with the fact that they probably won't look at you, <laughs> you can build a relationship that will eventually m- make its way, I guess, to eye contact. But but I think one of the things that's really interesting, at least for me, about eye contact is that really, um, it's your eyes really are a gateway. Like that, like what you let into your eyes and what you see defines you. But also, when other people look at you, there's there's such a um, intimate or intensity to that eye contact um intimacy or intensity to that eye contact because really what you're what you're what you're doing is you're trusting someone that they see you because when you when you're looking at someone is to be you're you're known by them and you're you're allowing them to be known whereas if you avoid eye contact what it means is there's a screen up there's like you you're not seen you're not seen by someone and and i think like there's a there's an incredible journey for, I think, for a lot of people with anxiety, but especially men, um, to, to go on where it's like, hey, like, be known. Like, be known for who you are. Like, not just the, the screen that you put up or the mask that you put on. And for this 16-year-old boy, the control that he had over how he wanted to be perceived as macho, manly, all this stuff, if he, if he gave me eye contact, eye contact like, it, it would be gone because I get to see him how I see him. We'll get back to the episode in a second. Before that, I just want to say, if you think this episode would be useful to a friend, send it along. You never know, it might just be the exact thing they're looking for today. And now back to the show. 
like you said, it's a gateway. You you feel like if someone's looking at you in the eye and you're maintaining eye contact, they'll see what you're thinking in your mind that you're not the man that you kind of want to be. You're trying to you're aspiring to that, but you still have these vulnerabilities and you don't want them to see that. I think that's what this boy had as well. And did you have that when you were a kid as well? Yeah, so as a kid, I think even peer levels, right? I, I don't know if you if you can relate to this, but I I remember like when when I was a kid, um, I like playing a game, playing football, tennis, whatever, was really relationally building for me. Whereas a conversation, like I was like, please, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to you because that means I have to look at you and we have to like, like, do you know what I mean? It, it feels really weird. Um, and and I think like as far as I'm concerned eye contact was definitely something that I learned to do as a politeness. <laughs> do you know what I mean? As opposed to like, something that I was like, yes, I'm pumped about eye contact. Um, because the, the thing you're talking about, vulnerability, and, and being seen and being known, actually it means you have, to, you have to allow someone to perceive you in a way that you might not like, right? <laughs> it's like, it's, this, it's a really interesting interesting part of what it looks like for us to grow i think as human beings but especially as blokes because because i think like as soon as we are in a situation where we cannot control how people view us it means that we have to deal with who we actually are rather than the hero complex we have about ourselves (laughs) do you know what i mean so so we have this we have this sense in which we 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 end up at least for me personally i end up believing my own legend and actually, it is like men to believe their own legend. Like, it, it's like this sense of, hey, like, I am, I'm fine. <laughs> like, I'm the hero. I don't need anyone to help me or rescue me or support me. Like, and allowing someone in, and in, especially in terms of like conversational eye contact stuff, allowing someone in really is releasing for you because you no longer have to be this, this person of, who's basically fictitious like who's a superhero who exists only in comic books you know like like and and it's amazing because you actually get to join and have relationships with other men and women who can support you through life and experiences that mean that you don't have to walk it alone it's powerful it's absolutely powerful mm. i think about a lot of young people that i've worked with because i i was a primary school teacher in hong kong for a few years and i worked in a primary school and not many kids actually would maintain eye contact but i remember times with my brother who's now 19 when he was 12 13 14 15 and we would go to restaurants and it's probably whether it was a good thing to do or, or not was i said to him when the waitress comes and asks for our order if you can maintain eye contact with her i will give you a pound i almost had this sort of reward system in place where i would say that to him and sometimes he would do it sometimes he wouldn't but it's kind of this feeling of i want to have my sphere of control and i don't want like we said before i don't want someone to look into finding out who i actually am because i want to keep that hidden and i want to keep that protected and it's only now as he's getting older and he's becoming more mature and he's he's coming across a lot more adults i think that was the problem as well that maybe we didn't have that many so many adults come into the house because of course kids are happy to maintain eye contact with other kids but when it comes to adults perhaps they feel this sort of inferiority complex or this sort of this naivety or they feel less than them i think that's probably i'm kind of giving you my experience of when i was a kid and i again i wouldn't i wouldn't like to maintain eye contact with people as well 
don't know, have you had a similar experience when you were a kid or were you a very confident boy? So I'm an identical twin. So there's two of us. There's two of me running around the planet. And so it was different, I think, for me, because we, we always had someone, I always had someone to bounce off and someone to like have that kind of that intensity of relationship with, I guess. But I definitely relate to the adult thing and not maintaining con- eye contact with adults because you're looking up all the time and they're looking down. And so that's hard because there's, there's a sense of like physical, physical hierarchy there, and which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think, like, I personally think that men, uh, uh, that parents need to have power over their kids, not, not in like a domineering way, but actually like, hey, just do what you're told. <laughs> but one of the things that you get taught throughout if you're involved in any child stuff, probably your primary school, is that you get down to their level. Like you, like you get down to a kid's level um, and you make sure that like what you're doing is you're, you're not domineering. Um, but if you're having a conversation, like you, you have it on their level rather than it being this towering presence. And so, so when it comes to kids and adults, it's not just the eye contact. It's the, um, it's the nature of how that eye contact is maintained because you literally have to look up the whole time in order, if they're standing, in order that you, um, that you have that connection. So for me, with, with my kids, what I do is, um, if we're talking about something that needs to be done, or if there's a consequence to an action or whatever, um, what I'll do is, is that I, I will, uh, so, and I mean, it's interesting to talk about eye contact. I, I hadn't even thought about this until just now, but almost automatically I'll kneel and I'll say, hey, Savannah, look at me in the eyes. Just look, look me in the eyes. And because what I want it to do is, is I don't want, I want her to know this is serious, but I also want her to know that actually the, the eye contact is not about um, a, a discipline thing. It's about a love thing. So it's not about, although love and discipline, uh, they're, they're, not, they're not different, actually. I think discipline is a form of love. It's a part of love. But, but the idea is, is that the, the, you're not looking at me in my eyes because there's a consequence of something you did. You're looking at me in my eyes because actually we are maintaining connection and building connection before there's a consequence because you need to know that the love that I carry for you far outweighs the consequence that you're about to receive. And so, and so for me, I, the, the eye contact piece, especially in children needs to be something that promotes the idea of connection and love rather than the connection of dominance. So for Savannah, she's three, she's three major, right? And it's like, Hey, like, how do I have a conversation with you in this moment that makes you um, aware that how you're feeling is fine. There's no issue with how you're feeling. How you're demonstrating how you're feeling might not be okay, but how you're feeling is absolutely great. And actually, for me, that's when the eye contact piece comes in because she doesn't want you, because Savannah, it's different for every kid, but she doesn't want you to touch her. She wants to be free from physical constraint when she's feeling emotional. And so what she, but what she can do is she can look at you. She can look you in the eye. And I think like for me, for her to know that no matter who she is, uh, how she's feeling, how she's expressing herself, that the eye contact that we have maintains a level of connection through that process is really important. And one thing that I think men miss in life is the connection to another person, especially other men, that says, hey, it's okay to feel how you're feeling, you know? Like it's, it's, it's actually okay that you feel angry. Um, it's actually okay for you to feel frustrated. And I don't want you to punch me in the face. 
but I'm telling you, I'm validating the emotion. I'm not going to validate how you express it if it's negative, but I'm validating the emotion in you um, and I'm validating the reality of how you feel as opposed to you have to bottle it up until you go to the pub and get so smashed that what happens is, is that you end up getting in four fist fights and getting arrested by the police. I'm like, and I see that pattern over and over and over and over again with men particularly where they have no outlet for an emotional conversation or almost like, there's this sense of like inferiority perhaps or or even this sense of, um, hey, I should not need this. I should not need to have a conversation about how I feel. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm the man or whatever it is. It's something interesting when you said about the connection side of when you're maintaining eye contact with someone because he's constantly in this protection. He's protecting his ego. He's, he's trying to have this sphere of control is so small that he's, he's constantly in this sort of protection mindset so he doesn't want to connect with other people he wants to stay in his safe place and that's the only thing he's got control over and that's where i suppose the compassion and where my heart goes out to him because he he doesn't have any sort of connection in his life absolutely and i think that's really important that that we understand that where we feel out of control we have two choices you lean into feeling out of control or you try and take control back or three, three choices, that one, those, those two, or you go to an environment which you can control, which normally means that you assert yourself as dominant. Um, and so I think like there's, and, and for Ted, for this kid that we're talking about, this, this sense of needing to feel powerful is, is, is huge. So for example, for, for this kid, um, he needed to learn that he could not just express emotion whenever he felt like it especially if it's damaging to other people. So his lesson wasn't, hey, bottle your emotion, but it was, hey, there are appropriate forms and spaces for you to do this, like when you do sessions with me. And what's interesting is, and if we talk, if, if we go back to this idea that eye contact means vulnerability, means showing yourself, means um, a, 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 actually being able to express yourself and being seen by someone else, and we also just go back to what we were talking about in terms of, hey, the places where you're able to validate emotion. What's interesting is, is that there's something really real about men needing to employ self-control so that they don't just get to express how they feel whenever they want. And this is like the, um, this is, I'm not a massive fan of fourth and fifth wave feminism, but feminism began this movement of, um, of like, uh, of understanding that hey guys don't just get to do whatever they want whenever they want like it's it's something that's really important that we understand that you don't just get to express yourself however you want in dominance particularly over women in the feminist movement and that's powerful i think that's a powerful i think we've gone way off the deep end personally but um in in the in the in recent hit years on feminism but that's a powerful thing that feminism began with and and the but, but what's happened is is that that's turned itself into hey men don't express yourself and, and and I would personally see this as an outworking of some of the anti-men feminist movements, which I don't think feminism began with at all. And and so I think like then, so, so men are in this interesting situation where they're like, we must control ourselves. We must be able to hold on to um, emotion. We must be able to hold on to how we feel or like our needs, our desires, um, and only express them at a time that is appropriate. The problem with that is, is that when you when you replace being self-controlled and having the places to express yourself positively in terms of how you feel with just being controlled, that's when it bottles up and becomes an explosion at a later time. And so and so basically, um, the the men have 
by far the highest suicide rate in the UK, in the Western world. So, so, and, and so what happens with women, and you can find all this information on the Centre for Social Justice, what happens with women is that a lot of the time there are far more attempts, but they're far less lethal in how they administer their suicide attempts. Whereas men, there are fewer attempts, but they're way more lethal. And so what happens is, is that men have this really interesting dynamic to their expression of emotion that tends to be explosion because it tends to be bottled and then explode. So the idea that you actually have something in your life or people in your life where you're able to maintain eye contact, if we want to use that as the symbolic nature of how to connect with emotion as a man, you maintain eye contact with them. Um, you have those spaces where it's safe to express and validating to express emotion and you don't bottle it up to the point where actually you're like, I can't do this anymore. I think that's really, really important. Eye contact is connection. Eye contact is, is, is allowing yourself to be seen and allowing yourself to be known even in your most vulnerable place. It's interesting when we look at men in traditionally female jobs. Social workers are predominantly female. Only 15% of social workers are men. After Tim's work with Ted, it got me thinking, if Ted's social worker was female, would he have had as much success as he had with Tim? Should more men be in roles like this that we traditionally see as female? Tim's work with Ted made me think how much better the world would be, what kind of place we'd be in right now, if more men were able to become positive role models for young boys, and how many young boys would avoid going down the prison system and getting into a life of crime. I've done work as a substitute teacher in some bad schools in the UK, and in other kind of roles I've had before. And it takes just one positive intervention for a boy's life to radically change for the better. There's some great organizations out there, for example, Lads and Dads, which have an amazing contribution to society in helping young boys to become good men. Tim is clearly a great example of someone who walks the talk and he's using those experiences to create a better life for his own kids. Are there boys or young men in your life that you could have a positive influence over? What can we do to help steer boys in the right direction so that they can avoid the many potential pitfalls that life presents? Before you go, let me tell you about our man test. The team and I created it with the belief that every man has hidden, untapped potential and I want to help you discover what it could be. Let's face it, We've all got dreams and aspirations, but the stresses of life can get in the way. I know I've been there myself. As men, each one of us has skills and knowledge that sets us apart from the rest. It's about discovering what they are and making the most of them. The man test is simple. It takes less than three minutes and will help you discover your true strengths and talents by working out what kind of modern man you really are. Find the link in the show notes and take the man test today. You never know. You might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.